Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the good news or the gospel according to John. John chapter 20 this evening, verses 1 to 18. You'll find it on page 906 of your Black Pew Bible. John 20, 1 to 18. The late uh, ABC News anchor Peter Jennings once said in an interview about Christianity, I was raised, he said, with the notion that it was okay to ask questions. And it was okay to say, I'm not sure. I believe. And then he went on to say, but I'm not quite so certain about the resurrection. A lot of people in modern America feel that way. And if you do, we're glad that you're here and we hope that you'll mull over the resurrection with us tonight and the benefits that come to us because of, because of his rising. To believe in the resurrection, you really only have to believe in one thing, that with God, all things are possible, that with God, nothing is impossible, that if God is God in any sense of the word, any meaningful sense, then he can do whatever he wants wherever he wants, whenever he wants. And uh, the claim of Christianity is that he, he lifted his son out of the tomb and he raised him into heaven to rule and to reign and he's coming back in glory to bring us to where he is. So not tonight we're going to consider the resurrection. Can it have really happened? And what kind of resurrection was it and why does it matter? Let me invite you to give your attention to those things as, as we consider John chapter 20 verses 1 to 18. We invite you to hear God's holy and inspired word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had car- have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's uh, ask him to bless us. And we do pray that you would be our teacher. We ask that you would minister your grace and truth to our hearts, that you would bless us and give us hope in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to think about three things this evening. The evidence for the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection, and the benefits or the meaning of the resurrection. In the first place, the evidence for it, uh, verses 1 to 10, the tomb where he was laid was empty. That's at least part of the evidence here. It's, uh, as others have put it, not enough just to say Jesus did not rise from the dead. You also have to give a historically feasible alternative explanation for what happened to the body of Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead because the tomb was empty. And I want to walk you through through some of the answers that various people have given on this and invite you to consider that this is the plausible answer. On Friday evening, it was clear that Jesus was definitely dead. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, having secretly been a disciple of Jesus, secretly because he he was afraid of the opinion of his peers, uh, he now openly asked for the body of Jesus. Jesus, that he might bury Jesus and give him that dignity. Evidently, the love of Jesus displayed for him upon the cross had given him the courage, despite his fears, to publicly say, I believe in this man. And back in chapter 19, at verse 39, we learn that Joseph had the cooperation of another Jewish man named Nicodemus, a teacher among the Jews. Together, as was the Jewish custom, they wrapped linen around the body parts of Jesus limb by limb with some 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes mixed in. They laid him in a tomb. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that it was sealed closed uh, with a, by the Roman government and a military guard was placed so that no one would disturb the tomb. Now, here we are on the morning after the Sabbath, on Sunday morning, very early. Some women come to finish the job of anointing him. And when they arrive, they see that the stone has been moved and the tomb is empty. What happened to the body of Jesus? Where was it? Well, the Bible says he conquered the grave. (laughs) But there are all kinds of alternate and implausible theories that have been offered by skeptics and I want to highlight a few of those for you and think about why you shouldn't put your trust in those ideas. In the first place, there's the old and now pretty well discarded swoon theory, but it's the idea that Jesus 
didn't really die when he was on the cross, that he fainted from the physical uh, torture and agony and blood loss and thirst, and that he was placed into a cool tomb, mistakenly thought to have died, and in the coolness of that, over the course of days, revived and got up and pushed back the stone and then went and showed himself to his disciples and somehow convinced them that this, you know, half-dead, staggering man with wounds everywhere and was really risen from the dead and alive forevermore, and they should worship him as God. Well, we know that's not believable in the first place because Jesus could not have survived the torture and execution. Roman law laid a death penalty upon any soldier who let a death penalty prisoner escape alive. The soldiers who crucified him would not have bungled the execution. In fact, they went around to each man and even broke legs on two of them to hasten their death. But knowing Jesus was not, I mean, was dead and was no longer alive, they didn't even bother to break his legs. It was so confirmed to them. Secondly, we know that Jesus was already dead before he was taken down because uh, not only did they not break his legs, but they pierced him through with a spear and out came blood and water, which is a sign of collapsed lungs. Thirdly, imagine the absurdity of it if Jesus did survive and that this theory was really true. He supposedly wakes up, rolls the tombstone away, appears to Mary and the other disciples, half dead, staggeringly injured, with just a narrow escape, and they worship him fearlessly at the cost of their own lives as the divine Lord and conqueror of death? That makes no sense. I mean, he didn't conquer death if he didn't really die. But this is why he was worshipped. So he didn't swoon. The second alternative theory is that, well, this is the wrong tomb. That Mary has come so early in the day, perhaps, while it's still dark, just at the cusp of dawn, and perhaps she was confused about where she was to go, some would say. Well, what would we say to that? Well, Mary had been there when Joseph and Nicodemus had placed Jesus in the tomb. She had been watching to make sure he was treated with dignity and to offer her help and service, and she was coming back to finish the job she thought needed further work. She wasn't confused about which tomb this was. And besides, when she went and told the disciples, Peter and John went and ran to the tomb. And they didn't wait on her to be told by her which tomb it was. They, they, they had a little foot race here. This disciple in the text that's uh, the other disciple, that's John. That's the apostle John. And he, he slyly puts in there that he actually outran Peter to the tomb and I suspect the rest of their lives he got to hold that over him he he was the younger man the more fleet of foot but but the point is nobody had to tell them which tomb was the right tomb and beyond that of course it would have been a simple thing if these three had said well Jesus is risen the tomb is empty it would have been a simple thing for the authorities to just simply roll away the stone of the true tomb, bring out the body of Jesus, or let them go in and see that he was really dead, and therefore crush this incipient messianic movement that was gathering all these worshipers away from Judaism and into this new thing, Christianity. But they didn't do that because they couldn't, because the tomb was in fact empty. Now there's a third uh, 
implausible historical alternative, and that is that somebody stole the body, and this is actually the one that Mary mentions. She thinks that somebody has taken the body of Jesus out of the tomb. She says this, perhaps uh, whether by conspiracy or not, uh, somebody took the body. Now, if that was the case, you have to run down your list of likely culprits. And on the one hand, people said, well, maybe it was the Roman or Jewish authorities. Now we have to say, why would they do that? The Jewish leaders steal the body? Well, the last thing was they, that they wanted was for Christians to go around proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. They hated Jesus when he was alive. They wanted him dead, and they certainly wanted him to stay dead. They didn't want him, even in the minds of people, to have any afterlife whatsoever. And if it was the Roman leaders who did it, well, why would they do that? And why risk giving people an alternative to Caesar as Lord? Which is a real concern. You don't, you don't let them announce an alternative king to King Caesar. You squash that if it's not true. But of course they didn't. And in fact, the, they had set a guard around the tomb in the unlikely but feared event that somebody might try to mess with the body. And you would have to get this whole guard either to fall asleep and sneak it past them, or you would have to get them to, to lie and tell people that the body uh, was uh, stolen, and it would be a dereliction of duty punishable by execution on their part. Why would they do that? And so if not them, then who did it? Well, some said, well, what about a common thief? What about grave uh, robbers looking to profit? In the history of the world, there have been people who have done this, who have gone after the possessions uh, of those that have been buried. Now, why would they do that? Jesus, we know, was poor. He wasn't likely to have a bunch of wealth with him buried in that tomb. Now, he was buried in a rich man's tomb, another man's tomb, and he was wrapped in expensive linen cloth with 75 pounds of spices. You might, could argue, somebody would be interested in that, but then, of course, you have to deal with the fact that the linen was left behind here. The expensive stuff was left in the tomb and neatly folded up, which you would do if you're a grave robber sneaking past a military guard in the middle of the night uh, for a little bit of profit. No, uh, it's none of them. Some have said, well, it was the disciples who stole the body. And then, of course, they made up the story about it. Why would they do that? Well, would they do it for a joke? Not likely. Would they do it for profit or prestige? Uh, Maybe to be associated with a proclaimed resurrected Messiah, though not a real one? Well, I suppose you could argue that point. But usually when people tell a lie, it's to further themselves in some way, either by prestige or profit. But in this case, we know that the lie disadvantaged them in every way. They were hated because they believed in a resurrected Savior. They were persecuted. They were excommunicated from their communities and their religion. They were variously imprisoned, tortured, exiled, crucified, boiled alive, roasted alive, beheaded, disemboweled, or fed to lions. 
hardly a perk of this kind of deceit. People lie, as I have told you often, I myself have done this once, twice. People lie to make life easier on themselves, not to make life harder. To get out of trouble, not to put themselves into trouble. And as others have said, nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. The famous mathematician and philosopher Pascal said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. And that's who you have in the disciples, dying for the truth that Jesus was risen. So then, what happened to the body of Jesus? If he didn't swoon, if they weren't mistaken about the tomb, and if the authorities uh, or thieves or disciples didn't steal the body, what do you have? Well, you have an empty tomb which is best explained by the historical fact that the tomb was empty because Jesus was alive. To believe otherwise, the Bible says, is to call God a liar and to declare God's word deceitful. And all the more, and in addition, to miss out on the benefits for those who believe in the risen Savior. And as Tim Keller says, he preaches every time he preaches at Easter, he likes to say to his friends and skeptics who come to the big New York City church, if you don't believe in the resurrection, wouldn't you at least like it to be true? How about you? Well, that's some of the evidence for the resurrection, or at least I should say some of the reasons why you shouldn't believe anything but the resurrection. Now let's think about the nature of the resurrected body or the nature of the resurrection. In verses 11 to 16, Jesus puts in an appearance here. And his appearance is physical, in a physical body. At verse 11, Mary is weeping. It grieves her that Jesus was not only mistreated in life and crucified, but now she believes mistreated in death. And somebody has messed with his body. And so she's weeping. And at verse 14, Jesus is standing there, but she doesn't recognize him immediately. It may be because of the dim light at dawn. It may be because of the tears in her eyes. Or or perhaps because the last sight she had of him was of a, a mangled, whipped, pierced, blood and sweat drenched, dead body and so she thinks that she's seeing the gardener but it's really Jesus and at verse 15 he asks her Mary as the angels did just prior why are you weeping it's very tender here perhaps aiming to get her to think it through has she not heard him predict both his death and his resurrection Why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? He says, shouldn't, you can almost hear him say, shouldn't you be rejoicing? Don't you know, Mary? And she doesn't know, not at that moment. He looks like a gardener. He has a common human form. He speaks like a man and he looks like a man. And he says, Mary. And and the scales come off her eyes. Her heart melts 
Rabboni, teacher. She rushes to him, grabs hold of him. He's entirely real. He's genuinely human. She knows she's not seeing some kind of disembodied spirit that's sort of come like a ghost to visit her after death. That is not what this is. This is a real human being. Jesus says, don't cling to me because she's clinging to him. Don't cling to me. I have, I have more to do, Mary. I've got to ascend to the Father. And so what you have here is not simply the, the spirit of Jesus uh, surviving death, but the reunion of the spirit with the body coming out of the grave, made whole, made well, made immortal yet still veiled in some way. Not the glorious, ascended, ruling and reigning body that is, uh, is brilliant in white that one day we will see that Revelation 1 speaks of, but a body that looks like a common gardener. Really human. Not a theoretical or a metaphorical resurrection here, but a physical resurrection And again, people have tried to offer alternative theories for what's happened here. Why were there so many who said they saw the risen Savior, not just the empty tomb, but a man in the flesh? Some have said, well, it was one big hallucination. Mary and the other witnesses were hallucinating somebody there who wasn't really there. The problem with that explanation is this. There are too many witnesses for this to be a hallucination. Hallucinations, those who are in the know, and I simply know by reading, but are private, generally private, individual, subjective, and short. And yet, Christ appeared to Mary. He appeared later to a group of women. He appeared later to the disciples without Thomas. A week later, to the disciples with Thomas. He met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he walked with them. He ate and broke bread. He ate fish at the seashore. He spoke to James, his brother, and he even appeared, as we read in 1 Corinthians, to 500 at one time. Over 500 is as public as you get. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that most of those 500 were still alive when he wrote this. And if you doubted Paul's words, well, you could go track those people down and talk to them and find out what they saw. This was no hallucination and it wasn't like a mirage that lasted only a few fleeting moments but Jesus spent 40 days on the earth variously meeting with people showing himself to be alive well if it wasn't a hallucination some would say well then it was uh, it was wish fulfillment they, they, it wasn't a hallucination exactly but they really wanted Jesus to rise from the dead and so they Whatever they saw, they said that's what it was. They got what they wanted. They saw what wasn't really there. The problem with that, of course, is Mary in this text, it's explicit, did not expect the risen Savior. She's there to finish the burial. Not because she believed Jesus when he said he would rise from the dead. Peter and John, the passage says, did not believe. Not before. They didn't believe the scriptures about it. They didn't believe Jesus' words about it. Nobody was waiting there to see him come out of the tomb because none of the disciples believed. 
So there's no fulfillment going on here of a wish. (laughs) Now, this can't best be explained by any of those things. And no, aliens didn't do this. And then up here. uh, And the final, final alternative historical explanation is that this is, the whole thing is just one big myth or legend. And this has become probably the most popular alternate theory because the other ones have been admittedly by so many, even skeptics, seen to be without merit. But, but some would say, well, what you really have is just an old book that's just a grown legend and we can't really believe any of this. And as others have pointed out, there are at least two big problems with that view. One being that there simply isn't enough time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the spread of the story about him for it to have become a mythical legend. What we're talking about is the kind of thing that, you know, the story that gets told at the campfire late one night and then, and then a month later somebody says, tell that story again. And then a guy goes to another campfire six months later and he says, I heard this story back over there and let me tell you about it. And like a kid's game of telephone, you know, the end of the chain is very different than the start of the story. But the problem is you need lots and lots of time for there to be some core story that over time has been twisted and turned and added to and and become bigger than it really was. You know, the fish has to grow in the telling. But the accounts of the New Testament of the resurrection of Jesus, they are immediately passed on. Those who told the story were eyewitnesses. We don't have the, the great, great grandson's account of Peter or John. We have John's account and Peter's account. Accounts which they immediately began to tell and proclaim and give their lives for and accounts which they themselves wrote and distributed. Even the Apostle Paul who saw the resurrected Christ later wrote down what we read in 1 Corinthians wrote that down just a decade and a half or so after the events themselves. There isn't time here to slowly add and to make a wild story out of nothing. But the second reason you know that this is not a myth is because if these are myths designed to be accepted as true, you would not make the first witnesses women. In a culture that didn't value and respect the opinion or the or the information or the trustworthiness of women. I'm sorry, ladies, you were not admissible in the court of law in that day. You were not allowed to give testimony to events that had happened in that day. So if you wanted to create a story that you were even, even if you weren't trying, but if you were embellishing it to try to actually get people to believe it, you would not make Mary the first witness, nor the other female disciples. They reported it that way because it happened that way. The physical body of Jesus reunited with his soul, stepped out of the grave, and he conquered death. So you have an empty tomb. You have a physically risen Savior. Now what's the point of all that? And this is where we'll close. It's not just that we have a true story and that we have every good reason to believe it and no good reason not to believe it. Though John did write this book, he explicitly says so that you would know the story and believe and by believing have life in Christ's name. 
there are benefits to believing. And in verses 17 through 18, at the end of the story, uh, there are some things highlighted here. Believing in the risen Savior guarantees to you who believe certain wonderful benefits. It guarantees in the first place a future for us. Death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't defeat him. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says, he is the first fruits guaranteeing a much greater harvest of risen ones when he comes again in his glory. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Our bodies go into the grave in weakness, a natural body and mortal, but they are, we are promised to be raised in power, a spiritual body and a mortal body, incorruptible like Christ's resurrected body. He's the first fruit of all who believe. This is your destiny, you have a future. But there's more here. His resurrection guarantees our access to the Father. He tells Mary, verse 17, I'm ascending to my father and to your father. So don't cling to me here and now. I've got more to do. I need to go there, Mary. Don't think you can hold me into this, this world. I'm not staying here. He's not, it's not that she shouldn't be touching him. I mean, he's later going to show his body to Thomas. And because Thomas doubts, he's going to say, touch me. So the don't cling to me here is just that she needs to know that there's more than him standing on the earth in that generation. But it is that he should rule and reign for all time over all things and come back in glory. And so he's not going to tarry on earth, but he's going to reign in heaven. I'm going to appear in heaven on your behalf, he's saying to her. I'm going back to the Father on your behalf and in my name The door of heaven is wide open. The throne room into the very presence of the face of the Father is wide open. And I am bringing in the tail of my train all my people with me. You have access to the Father through the Son. This is why Jesus says what many find offensive. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now he's saying, you come to the Father and you can come to the Father through me because I'm the way, because I'm the truth, because I'm the life. I give access to the one true and living God. Come in my name and you are welcomed, you are received. That's not a popular message today, but think how gracious it is. Think who he was saying this to. Mary, he's saying it to. And Mary, you go tell those other disciples You go tell them I'm going to my father and their father. You go tell my brothers this, Mary. He doesn't tell Mary, go tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards who ran out on me that if they grovel, I might, might be willing to forgive them. No, Mary, you go. Go and let them know I'm alive because his resurrection guarantees reconciliation and forgiveness if you are wrestling with believing notice that Jesus here is not harsh with those who are slow to believe he's not ready to pounce he is patiently graciously wooing people to trust him 
He's ready to forgive. Even our failures to believe. And so we could say this day with the Apostle Paul, if Christ is not risen, we are fools. And we're worshiping a dead man. And everybody ought to look on us with pity. And we have wasted our lives having followed and worshiped and served a dead man. And we have become liars about God. And we have no hope And we've put all our hopes in the wrong hope if he is not alive. But if Christ is risen and he is, the Apostle Paul says, then what a truth and what a blessing. He purchases our forgiveness. He grants us access to the Father. And he guarantees our everlasting future before the face of our Father in the joy of resurrected life forever for any And for all who look to God through him. May we all do so. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. You did a marvelous thing and you continue to do. Grant new birth. Grant new life even in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to believe. Forgive and help our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing of the resurrection.